The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Courtesy of this week's issue of People magazine, which I'm not sure I was aware was still going. But uh, at any rate, this is one of those small, sad local stories of no importance in the larger scheme of things that nevertheless appears to have a huge metaphorical power. Martha McKay belongs to the prominent Arkansas family, the Snowdens. In 1996, in one of the most notorious murder cases in the state's recent history, Martha's mother and her cousin were murdered by a young black man called Travis Lewis, who pleaded guilty and went to jail. Upon his release from prison in 2018, Miss McKay gave Lewis a job and let him and his parents live on the estate. She said that as a Buddhist, it was her spiritual obligation. In return, Travis Lewis stabbed her, bludgeoned her to death and left her corpse at the top of the stairs on the same property at which he'd killed her mother and her cousin over 20 years earlier. The great question for us since 9-11 is, as I sometimes put it, whether our society is too stupid to survive, or to put it less crudely, whether we have advanced to the stage where the very survival instinct has been bred out of us which is why the pitiful fate of one Arkansas Buddhist gives me pause. If that's the metaphor of the week, this clip, I think, ought to have been the story of the week. On Fox News, Sandra Smith interviewed Trey Gowdy about the quote-unquote unmasking of U.S. citizens by Obama, Biden and high-ranking members of their administration during the ludicrous anachronistic transition period of two and a half months that ought to be abolished, but which, judging from the silence of the Constitution fetishists, Conservative Inc. is just fine with. Anyway, here's what Trey Gowdy said almost en passant. But Sandra, it's not just Michael Flynn. There was an unmasking request made the morning of the inauguration. The morning of the inauguration. President Trump's family members' names were unmasked. So that needs to be reformed. Trey, the American people hear what you are saying today. We had Katie McFarland, Flynn's former deputy, on this same time yesterday morning. I don't like to teach Sandra Smith her job, but what I'd have said in response to that was, whoa. You're telling me that on Inauguration Day, the outgoing president demands the unmasking of the incoming president moments before he takes his oath. Uh, The unmasking of the incoming president and his family to lower them into the snares of the deep state and generate so-called intelligence reports on them. Inauguration Day is a Saturday. It's a non-business day. Actually, for the Obama administration, it's half a Saturday. They're done at noon when the president takes that oath of office. So there is no such thing as a legitimate unmasking request made on the Saturday morning of the inauguration, uh, especially of the president and his family, because the guy making the request is clearing his desk. And yet, and yet, all the much vaunted checks and balances are as nothing when a banana republic regime gets an election result it doesn't like and decides to use the 24-7 panopticon security state to destroy its successor. Where are the Republicans on this? Where's Conservative Inc.? 
Where are the constitution fetishists? Victoria Day weekend 2020. From my house arrest to yours. It's your Stein Show Coronacopia. Everybody was Kung Flu fighting. Those stats climbed fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. Chai comes of expert timing. There were funky China men from funky Wuhan town. They were chopping bats up, they were chowing them down. It's an ancient Chinese dish, and everybody says delish. Chairman Z will book your flight, you'll be in Milan tonight, and everybody starts kung flu fighting. That's enough of that, that's enough of that. I've always liked Slovenia, ever since I happened to be there when the Yugoslav Air Force bombed it, just for one day, but it happened to be the day I was there. Now, Slovenia has become the first European nation to declare the coronavirus over, and therefore to have no further need to have extraordinary public health measures. They've reopened their borders with Italy, Austria and Hungary to EU nationals. Other foreigners will be required to quarantine for 14 days. Other than that, the emergency is over. We shall wait to see how they prosper. Likewise, the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, have opened up a common travel area between their three nations. Meanwhile, on the eve of Victoria Day, my beloved town of Montreal is one of the worst epicenters of the Wu flu on the planet. And let's keep it simple. Saturday's Montreal Gazette usually has three pages of obituaries. Last Saturday it had eight and a half. So for whatever reason a lot more people are dying. As in New York and Pennsylvania there is in Quebec a care home scandal. In New York the scandal is that Governor Cuomo ordered care homes at 24 hours notice to take a bunch of corona positive patients with N entirely predictable consequences. So now he has a big pile of corpses on his hands, but on the other hand, his approval numbers are going gangbusters, so it seems to be working for him. In Pennsylvania, the scandal is that somebody misgendered the state health director. He was a talk jock from some local station, and now the governor is refusing to go on that station because the guy misgendered the state health director. She She's a, a very unconvincing transgender lady, but her unconvincingness you're not supposed to notice or you'll be excommunicated like this radio station has been. Um, the health director, even as she moved corona patients in to spread death and devastation within their halls, she moved her own mother out and to a safe facility. In Montreal, the Sayash SL Day, Vigie Montréal, that's in lovely Mount Royal, all leafy and suburban, just north of downtown or Centreville, at the Sayash SL Day, 100% of the care home patients, that's all 226 residents, have been infected. Every single one. To date, over 70 have died. 
There's some talk that it might be in the ventilation system, but there's been some talk about that for three months and we're none the wiser. Uh, people who argue that the management of the crisis uh, has warmed people up to the idea of big government. I have no idea what planet they're living on because big government's manage of this crisis uh, has almost everywhere you look made it worse. You know, I blow hot and cold on this. I try to follow the medical journals and see what progress we're making on identifying exactly what this thing is and what it does and why it does it. And then I wonder if it isn't all a lot simpler than that. Look at, say, uh, New York, Montreal, London, those big world cities, as London's mayor calls his town. You know what he means. Where you walk down the main drag and everybody under 50 looks like they came from somewhere else, even if you can't put your finger on precisely where it is, whether they're tourists or just your uh, barista or burger flipper. And care homes fall largely into that latter category. The places you warehouse your grandma are serviced by nurses and janitors from everywhere but the jurisdiction in which you've parked them. And maybe those nurses and janitors go back and sleep in the same close quarters those Tyson immigrant meatpackers in the American Midwest do, where you're in a rental house with a great transient population all around you continuously circulating sleeping four, five, six, seven to a room. And then, by contrast, I look at Ljubljana or Tallinn or Riga, places that had the seeming misfortune to be seriously quarantined by the Iron Curtain for decades, and so are two or three generations behind in that multi-culti world city vibe Bill de Blasio and Sadiq Khan dig so much. Uh, and in in those cities such as Ljubljana, Tallinn, Riga, your latte is whooshed and frothed and your care home is swept and mopped, maybe by some guy you went to school with. Imagine that. And oddly enough, those cities that are backwaters, off the main routes of the great globalist churn, hither and yon, seem to be resisting the coronavirus quite nicely. Gee, it's... Uh, Almost like diversity is our strength isn't just a harmless bromide, but a fatal delusion. Ah, but you can't say those things, can you? Because then people will start calling in and trying to get you cancelled. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Today's Brit Wanker Copper of the Day, Police Constable King of the Metropolitan Police Officer Number 3121T for Tango. He seems quite proud of the number, as you'll hear. Yesterday at about 3 p.m. BST, that's either British summertime or bovine spongiform time, I forget which, just round the corner from the Spectator's old offices in Doughty Street, in London West Central 1, where in the good old days Boris Johnson would treat me to a three-quid spag bowl. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Hector Birchwood. Hector Birchwood was on his way to post some business mail and to get lunch when he got the attention of an oncoming police vehicle with two officers. The car did a swift U-turn into Doughty Street and one constable got out to follow Mr Birchwood while the cop car stopped just ahead of him in the road to block his path. As PC King explained, they were onto him 
because he had the look of a man who has just, quote, parted with someone. And we can't have that, can we? He stops you, sir. It's because I've noticed you walking down. It looks like you've just parted with someone. You've then turned around and walked the other opposite direction. I have not parted with anyone. I have just been walking from my home. Got that? Mr. Birchwood had not actually parted with someone. He was on his own, on his tod, as they used to say in London. But he has the low and suspect air of a man who might have recently parted with another equally unsavoury character. And looking like a chap who's recently parted with someone is these days in England, Mother of Parliament's Crucible of Liberty. In modern England, that's grounds for being detained by the peelers. Furthermore, Mr Birchwood then committed the additional offence of noticing that he was now being followed by the plods. Back, the police car that's passing when we pass you and then you look back again and then you suddenly crossed over the road and come in here so my concern is i'm thinking why is he paying so much attention so that's why i've come to you and the officer jumped out spoken to you and asked you a question why wonders pc king is this man paying so much attention to us paying so much attention to him if he were innocent he'd surely pay no attention to us paying attention to him so now being highly trained officers we're paying attention to him, paying attention to us, paying attention to him. And this insolent boob member of the public now wants to up the ante by getting out his telephone and paying attention to us, paying attention to him, paying attention to us, paying attention to him. You immediately have assumed I don't know what. And now you've immediately got your phone out and you're starting to try and film us to intimidate us. I'm not too sure why. My name's PC King. I'm attached to Shortest Police Station. My number's 3121 T for Tango. I haven't detained this male under any power. I'm asking him a simple question, OK? At the moment, he can walk off should he so wish. I haven't detained him. But he's choosing to film me for some reason, OK? Well, you explained the reason, didn't you, PC King? He's filming you to intimidate you. That's what you said. You following him is not intimidating him. You're colleague blocking his path with his police car isn't intimidating him. You accusing him of being the sort of man who gives off the air of having recently parted with someone, which is apparently a serious crime in London, isn't intimidating him. But Mr Birchwood whipping out his cell phone is intimidating you. And as I mentioned the other day, no one has seen more police out on the street than during this lockdown. There's never a policeman around when you're being stabbed. There's never a policeman around when you're being urinated on by your Muslim grooming gang. But there's a squad car waiting for you if you're sauntering down the pavement with the mean of a chap who has recently parted from someone. I do believe PC King may be not just today's Brit wanker copper, but our very first mega wanker copper of the day. Let her rip, lads. Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker in the blue hat? Who's the wanker in the big blue hat? Your Brit mega wanker copper of the day, PC King of the Met, officer number 3121T for tango, because a man who knows the tango knows the look of a man who has recently parted with someone. With a rose between his teeth, a tight bolero jacket, and his hands on his hips, with a somewhat petulant expression. Jazz, Frank Sinatra, good old-fashioned rock and roll. Fill your ears with all sorts of music curated by Mark Stein himself at Stein Online. Riding along in my auto. 
music plays on at Stein Online through exclusive Mark Stein show performances. There's a kind of hush all over the world tonight. Biographies of great performers and songwriters and Mark's On the Town audio specials. Are we really happy with this lonely game we play? Chuck Berry to Cole Porter, Ted Nugent to Johnny Mercer. New specials added regularly. Put some records on by heading over to www.steinonline.com slash music. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Brian from Minneapolis left a comment the other day noting a strange synchronicity between the two big stories of the last week. The Michael Flynn case is all about, quote, unmasking, the deep status term for revealing the identity of American citizens they've been listening in on. And the coronavirus is increasingly about masking, about making non-mask-wearing societies wear masks. And it reminded me of a poem by uh, Thomas Hardy called The Masked Face. Hardy is uh, better known these days as a novelist, far from the madding crowd, uh, Tess of the Durbervilles, all that. Uh, but he chucked the novel-writing business after publishing Jude the Obscure in 1895. Some say... Uh, because of the critical reaction to that book. And thereafter, he focused on poetry. This poem was written at the beginning of the Great War about a man who finds himself in a giddying place with no firm fixed floor, which is as good a way as any of looking at the world in, say, 1915, when its very foundations seem to be crumbling, uh, and not a bad way of looking at the world a century later. And the masked face can be read either as a godlike being or, as some scholars have interpreted it, a part of oneself that is somehow responsible for the wobbling, shifting, uncertain ground on which we stand. The third stanza, uh, about a goose-quill pen taking dictation from the infinite about things beyond its comprehension, I found a bit pretentious and writerly when I was a young lad, uh, but I've warmed up to it a bit in, uh, in recent years because increasingly I too feel like a stenographer of madness. Um, I should say that Thomas Hardy was appalled by the devastation and horror of the First World War and that uh, if this was what... Western, quote, civilization had wrought, it was, in his view, not worth saving, and it was better to, quote, let the black and yellow races have a chance. And thus began a century of loss of civilizational self-confidence, culminating in the spring of 2020 when Chairman Xi seems minded to take Hardy up on his offer. First published in 1917 in Moments of Vision and Miscellaneous Verses, by Thomas Hardy, The Masked Face. I found me in a great surging space at either end a door, and I said, what is this giddying place with no firm fixed floor that I knew not of before? It is life, said a mask-clad face. I asked, but how do I come here, who never wished to come? Can the light and air be made more clear, the floor more quiet some? And the doors set wide, they numb, fast locked and fill with fear. The mask 
put on a bleak smile then, and said, O vassal white, there once complained a goose-quill pen to the scribe of the infinite, of the words it had to write, because they were past its ken. A poem from Me to You by Thomas Hardy, who gave it a striking title, The Masked Face. Oh, it was striking, until we woke up to find that all faces have to be masked. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. David, a first weekend founding member from Camberwell in the great Australian state of Victoria, writes, Hi, Mark. In a recent Mark's Mailbox, you made a solid case for bringing manufacturing back to the US. Here in Oz, there seems to be broad agreement about the risks posed by our reliance on China, other than a few billionaires shamelessly running PR for the Chaicoms. Actually, that's not a small thing, David. Until the COVID, um, my fear was that Australia was the first Western nation whose governing class had been all but wholly corrupted by China. Then the COVID came along. And I realise it was, in fact, my uh, own senior dominion of Canada. Uh, but while we're at it, the assumption of post-war geostrategists has always been that circa 1950, via NORAD and ANZUS and U.S. bases in Bermuda and the like, that America had inherited the global networks built up by Britain over centuries. It's pretty obvious right now that in the Indian Ocean, uh, in Africa, in Australia and the Pacific, in much of the Caribbean, in Canada, that the real beneficiary of the estate of the British Empire has, in fact, been the People's Republic. Back to David in Victoria. Quote, the question du jour is not should we pivot away from China, but how? This is a massive undertaking and is fraught with difficulties and trade-offs. Your diagnosis is excellent, but I'm disappointed with the lack of a clear pathway out of this mess we find ourselves in. Some questions. Do you really suggest we bring all manufacturing back to the US or spread the new capacity across allies? Haven't great powers through history traded with allies and neutrals and even rivals? Surely it is a 10-year-plus undertaking just to bring the most sensitive stuff like 5G and other key technologies and medicines back, let alone T-shirts. What to do about Europe, which seems to be within China's grasp? How to achieve the shift? Is it Trump's favoured tariffs or other policies? How to deal with China in the period of adjustment? Here in Oz, we are already incurring China's wrath with bans on beef and more expected. It isn't hard to see us being cowed by the CCP and backing off. Do Western leaders aggressively and publicly criticise China and allow the level of animosity to ratchet up, or do they try to keep a lid on things while we pivot? Does the US cancel debt to the Chinese as a form of reparation, or does this risk the US dollar losing its reserve currency status and therefore cause more damage than good? How will China react to these various responses, and how can we avoid causing great damage to our own societies and or risk outright war? China does seem to have weakness below the surface. Its citizens do not trust the government, and more than likely a great many of them despise the PRC. How do we better exploit this weakness? How do we keep our own populations on board when any of these actions will cause short and medium-term harm? Didn't you change your mind on Iraq because you decided the West doesn't have the stomach to see out the mission? 
your assessment, please. P.S. Obviously, this is a huge subject and cannot be done justice in a five-minute response. Indeed, David, very true. Probably demands some kind of special. So we'll bank a couple of the points. Well, we'll bank actually more than a couple of the points uh, you made and uh, try them pick them up on ensuing shows. But just on that last point we Iraq, it wasn't the popular will that was the problem for me. Long before that, the leadership class in Washington had made clear it had no strategic goals, nor any sense of the national interest in these places, nor any means to impress its will on uh, what were de facto American protectorates. As I've argued at length elsewhere, I think the whole idea of the American way of war needs examining. You can't dine out on Hiroshima forever. After Korea, Vietnam, the helicopters in the Iranian desert, Gulf War I, Afghanistan, everyone knows we can do shock and awe for three nights. Then what? If you're going to be somewhere for 20 years, you need to be able to do non-shock and non-awe. 25 colonial office civil servants ran Uganda. These days, that's not enough for a county task force on when it will be safe to open tanning salons. So if we do ever find ourselves in a war with China, not only will we be paying for both sides, but we'd almost certainly end up losing. This is a serious point that Bill Crystal, Max Boot, Robert Kagan will not consider. What's the point of having the greatest equipment and the best trained military if your decayed Pentagon bureaucracy no longer knows how to use it to win a war? On China... However, a couple of things. It's not necessary to have everything made in your own country. Obviously, I'm a foreigner, uh, so I have no particular objection to having foreigners make things, like the French do with wine or the Italians with shoes. The problem is, when you consciously transfer your domestic economy uh, to not merely a foreigner, not merely a geopolitical rival, but your principal strategic opponent... I think we could do a couple of things very quickly. First, uh, and this is aside from moving the medicines back and uh, and the Huawei stuff and all the rest. First, Western nations should give 100% tax credits to companies that come home. Uh, that sounds generous, but not really, given that one Chinese virus can send us back to the Depression in a couple of weeks. However, I understand that many Western companies seriously doubt they can make those wares back home, so there should also be somewhat lower tax credits. I'm thinking around 80% uh, for those companies that move their factories from China to anywhere else, i.e. friendlier nations such as India. Secondly, the cost of hiring Americans to make things in America, or Australians to make things in Australia, needs to be lowered. I don't mean the salary, I don't mean the paycheck, because that's 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 just the, the baseline. But the other costs imposed by taxes, regulations, health and safety, workman's comp, all the things you have to pay in addition in order to put a comparatively small sum of money in an American's pocket. Many uh, of these uh, regulatory fripperies might seem admirable in and of themselves, but American workers aren't actually deriving any benefit from them. Because instead of hiring 10,000 American workers, American companies hire 10 workers for the corporate HQ with the potted plants in the lobby and offshore the other 9,990 to China, where those guys most certainly are not working under OSHA, workman's comp and all the rest. So it's a classic piece of liberal humbug, whereby you get to virtue signal about how much you care about working conditions, 
While everything you buy is made in Chinese sweatshops and Americans are forced into low-paid service jobs or meth labs, we have maybe five or ten years to reverse this humbug or it will be too late. And right now, my worry is we won't even try. The tax credits to come home or to move to India or Vietnam, Taiwan, that's a small first step. And instead of lying to us about V-shaped recoveries, I would appreciate it if Western political parties at least put something like that on the table. We'll have more on this. Mark Stein's Last Call. Almost every sport has been cursed by COVID-19 in recent weeks. Uh, we've covered some of them here, from Italian marathon runners to English footballers. But this one seems particularly poignant, since the entire point of this sport is that it's a great visual statement of massive corporeal presence. Mm, this is just horrible. The first sumo wrestler to test positive for coronavirus has sadly died. A date of death has been given as May the 13th. His ring name has been released as Shobushi, but his family would have loved him as Kiyotaka Omori. The Yamanashi-born strongman was only with us for 28 years, nearly half of those being dedicated to professional sumo. Perhaps Shobushi would never have become one of the great sumo wrestlers, but we shall never know for certain. He had, though, in recent seasons been spending time on the comedy sumo circuit, or Shokiri. The Shokiri was performed by two 27-year-old Sandanme wrestlers from Takadagawa stable, the taller Ebisumaru and the shorter Shobushi. Uh, clearly, the wrestlers need to be at the same stable in order to practice regularly because comedy routines require a lot of rehearsing. Really? As far as I can tell, Shokiri seems to mostly involve playful pats on one's opponent's wobbling buttocks, punctuated by the occasional foot in the crotch. And in answer to some of your questions last time, yes, traditionally, this role has been given to wrestlers who are not expected to get anywhere. In other words, they have the time to fool around. Uh, specifically, they have to be below Division 3 level. Indeed, if a young wrestler performing comic sumo suddenly becomes strong, he will be taken off those duties on the grounds that, if he has time to be fooling around, he has time to do more training. Now, that's what happened to Tochi Nishiki in the 1940s, and he went on to become Yokozuna. Yokozuna means the grand champion, and that opportunity is now forever denied to Kiyotaka Omori. Dead at the age of 28, the sumo wrestler Shobushi. Yoshio is also a Japanese name, but in this case it's appended to a monominous Mexican singer. America has Madonna, Scotland has Lulu, England has Sting, Ireland has Dana, France has Dalida, and Mexico has Yoshio. His mother was Mexican, his father was a maker of so-called Japanese peanuts, which are nothing to do with Japan, but were invented by Yoshio's dad after emigrating to Mexico. You take a peanut and coat it in toasted wheat flour and soy sauce. 
very popular in Mexico. But Yoshio decided peanut vending was not for him. If you were south of the border in the 70s and 80s, you will certainly know his big hits. Yoshio singing Lock it Paso Paso. Whatever happened, happened. A somewhat fatalistic view of life, and I wonder if he held it when he was taken into hospital a fortnight ago and diagnosed with salmonellosis. A couple of days later, he tweeted that they were now looking into whether it was COVID-19. And that was his last communication with the world. Mexicano por parte de mi madre y siempre he dicho que soy japonés por parte de un amigo de mi padre. And now, for Yoshio, the end was near, and so he faced the final cut. did it my way, or in his case, he did my way his way. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 60, the singer Yoshio. Among the more than 40 residents dead of COVID-19 at just one Toronto care home, a macabre and ironic term these days, was a name that brought back some ancient memories for me because half a lifetime ago I'd asked her for advice about breaking into television. She had two advantages over me. One, she won a beauty contest in her hometown of Hamilton, Ontario, and as a result, CHCH-TV hired her as one of the helpers on a cookery show. I've done that gig, wouldn't mind doing it again, actually. And then later she married one of the most innovative and energetic producers and talk show hosts in American TV, David Susskind. And so she was a fixture on our screens from the 50s to the 80s. The Joyce Davidson Show. 
Today, astrology. No year would be complete without an astrological forecast. Will the rain in Spain fall mainly on the plain? Will Geminis make peace with Virgos? Will Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis remarry? And what's with you? Will in a minute famous astrologer, Robin Armstrong, stargazes and forecasts. We'll be right back. As things turned out, Joyce Davidson's real big break was not winning that beauty contest in Hamilton, but insulting the Queen. She was just another CBC host until, down in New York, she chanced to be interviewed by Dave Garraway on NBC's Today Show about Her Majesty's six-week royal tour of every Canadian province in 1959. And Miss Davidson replied that, quote, like most Canadians, I am indifferent to the visit of the Queen. The uproar back home was such that within days, Joyce Davidson had quit the CBC and decided to pursue opportunities in America. She co-produced Hotline, a show hosted by Gore Vidal, and Dorothy Kilgallen, there's a real dream couple, and she turned up very regularly on top American shows. Here she is bantering with Merv Griffin. One of these men has come 10,000 miles to meet a famous person he rescued almost 18 years ago. What is your name, please? My name is Reg Evans. My name is Reg Evans. My name is Reg Evans. Only one of these men is the real Reg Evans. The other two are imposters and will try to fool this panel. Tom Poston, Joyce Davidson, Don Amici, and Betty White. On to tell the truth. And here sitting in for Bud Collier is the star of Player Hunch, Merv Griffin. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Thank you very much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Very nice to be here again. Also, the welcome ad is out uh, to a star of Canadian television who's making one of her infrequent appearances on American television. Joyce Davidson, I hope this evening turns out to be a very pleasant one for you. Thank you, Merv. I'm enjoying right? being an immigrant. So far? Yes. Good. All right. To tell the truth. She was by far the youngest person on that show, younger than Merv, younger than Betty White, younger than Tom Poston, younger than Don Amici. And yet by the 80s, they were all still going strong. Don Amici in the Cocoon films, Tom Poston in the Bob Newhart show set in Vermont, uh, Betty White in Golden Girls, uh, and Merv Griffin, of course, as the creator of Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. They were all going strong, and the young'un's career was fading away. Still, it was a grand run. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 89, Joyce Davidson. A decade ago, ISIS, the JV team of jihad, according to Obama, were rampaging across Iraq, and among those fleeing in their wake were Nadir and Nada Aram and their three young children. They eventually came to America in 2012, and settled in Michigan. 
Then came the COVID. It was March when Renee Yaldo and the Chaldean American Ladies of Charity first began helping the Aram family of Sterling Heights. The kids, 20-year-old Nash, 18-year-old Nadine, and 13-year-old Nancy, forced to fend for themselves after their parents were in the ICU with COVID-19 on ventilators in two different hospitals. The two oldest kids did have it and self-treated at home while their parents were in the hospital. But sadly, their parents did not survive, dying within weeks of each other. Nada, who was 46, died April 21st. Their 52-year-old father, Namir, lost his battle on Monday. Their parents were fine and healthy, and then they just weren't feeling well. And to think that that's the last time that you would see your parents is just devastating. Yaldo says the Aram family escaped the ISIS violence in Iraq and immigrated here in 2012, hoping to live the American dream. Without any relatives here, their oldest son, Nash, is now left to care for the family. Mom was a homemaker. The dad brought in all the money and he took care of the family. And so these kids have to now learn a new way of life. They escaped ISIS, but not COVID-19. And their son and two daughters have to fend as best they can. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the ages of 52 and 46, Nadir and Nada Aram. That's it for our show. Thank you for all your kind comments upon the third birthday of the Mark Stein Club. Craig Weckeser, a first-month founding member from Texas, writes... Been mostly a silent partner, but happy to be aboard. God bless you, Mark, and your voice of reason, not to mention your wit. Well, we treasure our silent partners, Craig, and are honoured to have you aboard. Do feel free to be semi-silent and pipe up every year or three. You're more than welcome. Have a great weekend. On Monday, I'll be back behind the golden EIB microphone on America's number one radio show. So our first Stein Show of the week will air Tuesday. Hope you'll join me. For one or the other or both, Um, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, let's close out the week with a Japanese peanut scion and Mexican hitmaker Yoshio. Don't do it the governor of Michigan's way. Don't do it the South Yorkshire police's way. Do it your way. Stay safe. Stay free. for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved. Ahí está el reconocimiento del público de Oak Hill. Ahí se entrega tuya. Ahí se sabor, ese feeling.